0: This morning, uh, I'm just reminded of uh, a couple things. Um, first of all, this is the year that the the geek of uh, the geek kind of fandom of Star Wars has returned, right? So we all saw that uh, about December. If you're if you're offended by that, I apologize already. Um, but I was kind. Of, Kind of, uh, I'm kind of late seeing the new movie. I don't know if if you haven't seen it, you're later than me. Um, I was a couple of months behind seeing this new Star Wars movie. Um, I'm a fan in the fact that I owned the VHS set growing up, the big brick that was wrapped in the gold, if you remember it, or he had it. Um, and I remember watching these as I grew up, but I wasn't the guy like camped out outside the movie theater wearing a Yoda costume or anything like that. Perhaps some of you were, uh, but that 's just not me, but I was listening to a podcast just the other day uh, by Russell Moore, and he was talking about uh, the Star Wars movie that had just recently come out at the time, and he was alluding to uh, the idea of uh, of g- generational disciple making, which is what we 're going to talk about tonight and or this morning rather, and what he was saying was uh, Was that this movie was in many ways a a movie about nostalgia and so uh, so what from the fans all the way to the cast members themselves he kind of uh, recreates all of the different ways that people celebrated uh, to have all these beloved characters back together again and so in many ways uh, the movie itself, too, the plot, was a retelling of the old one, right? It was a new hope pretty much remade uh, in many ways. And so just as this podcast was was alluding to, though, this movie was good at the nostalgic element, but at the same time, what it was also good about was was the emergence of a new generation of characters, a new cast that would continue on in the continuing story. So it did a really great job in setting up the new generation of characters. And so it's what he he goes on to say in this podcast is that it's easy for us to see these kind of things in a Star Wars movie or otherwise, but it's more difficult oftentimes for us to see the need of generational investment, of handing these things off to the new cast members of this continuing story uh, in our own lives. And the reason for that is we too, as followers of Jesus, are part of a continuing story of God's redemption through His Son, Jesus. Uh, And and our part in that story is, and our instrumental place in that, is always tied to how well we do at handing it off to the next cast or the next generation. And so this morning I want to talk about uh, the wonder of generational discipleship from Joshua chapter four, and the hope of the gospel, the global hope of the gospel. So I think the book of Joshua itself uh, is also a book about successorship, like we're talking about. It's a book about um, a predecessor handing off his legacy, his ministry, and uh, and there's a there's also this kind of uh, this chronicling of preparation and fulfillment. So Joshua chronicles for us in the scriptures, uh, the entrance of Israel into the promised land, okay? And so after wandering in the wilderness, uh, they've been prepared by Moses, now Joshua will now take them into what Moses has been preparing them for, okay? And so Joshua's predecessor, Moses, is featured in the background throughout the whole book, Um, as Joshua is the fulfillment of what his work was done, of the people of the Lord being prepared to enter into the promise of the Lord uh, that he gave so many years ago to Abraham when he was sitting on a plot of land and God promised him, I will make you a multitude of nations. I'll make you a father of multitudes. I'll make you a nation, and through this nation, all nations of the world will be blessed. Through your seed, all the nations of the world would be blessed. And so 40 years of aimless wandering in the wilderness, God's people are now a nation, and now they are about to enter into what God had promised, the promised land. This wandering had co- was about to come to an end, and where Moses had led his people in preparation, his aid now and successor would embark upon the fulfillment of God's promise. And so here the people of Israel stand on the precipice on the coast, the edge of the Jordan River, and it was the Jordan that would separate the promise made to the promise fulfilled. It would be the Jordan that separated God's people's past from their future. And so that's what I want us to look at this morning, knowing that, and let's jump in to Joshua chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 1, and then we'll skip on down. Joshua chapter four verses one through seven reads this: When all the Jordan had finished, pa- all the nation had finished passing over the Jordan. The Lord said to Joshua, "Take twelve men from the tri- from the people, each a tribe of man, and command them, saying, Take 'Take twelve stones from here, out of the midst of the Jordan, from the very place where the priests' feet stood firmly.'" And bring them over with you, and lay them down in the place where you lodged tonight. Then Joshua called twelve men from the people of Israel, whom he had appointed, a man from each tribe. And Joshua said to them, Pass on before the ark of the Lord your God in the midst of the Jordan, and take up each of you a stone upon his shoulders, according to the number of tribes of the people of Israel that this may be a sign among you when your children ask in time to come, what do these stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. Now skip to verse 15. And the Lord said to Joshua, Command the priests bearing the ark of the testimony to come out of the Jordan. So Joshua commanded the priests, come up out of the Jordan. And when the priests bearing the ark of the covenant of the Lord came up from the midst of the Jordan, and the souls of the priests feet were lifted up onto dry land, the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and overflowed all its banks as before. The people came up out of the Jordan on the tenth day of the first month and they encamped at Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. And these 12 stones which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal and he said to the people of Israel, when your children ask their fathers in times to come, What do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know. Israel passed over this Jordan onto dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over. And the Lord your God did also to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. This morning, as we look at this text, the main point I want us to look at is this, that followers of Jesus impress him upon the next generation that the world may know and hope in him. Followers of Jesus impress him upon the next generations that the world may know and hope in him. And here's the reason that's the case, church, is that this. The exaltation of Jesus among the generations is for the praise of Jesus among the nations. That is why all things exist. And that is why we impress him upon the next generation. And so I want to give you three realities of generational disciple-making from Joshua chapter 4 that I think speak to this for us. The first one is this, um, that it flows first, generational disciple making flows from our personal deliverance and redemption. It starts personally. It starts with us. Verses 1 through 7 show us this, right? It was the people of God's own identity before him, their own deliverance and their own redemption that was to be the foundation of their investment in all the next generations that would follow. Here's the thing, so it is with us as well. You see, verses 22 through 24 describe there were two waters that parted, that God had parted, that formed the very core of the identity of God's people here in Israel. The first one was the Red Sea. The Red Sea was a picture of God's deliverance from bondage and slavery into freedom. Okay, That was the first body. The second body of water that was parted by God, that is a part of the forming of their core identity was the Jordan itself, which is the, the narrative is where we're at now. The narrative takes us and shows us that it's the Jordan that they would now cross, and this would picture ultimate fulfilled hope and redemption into promise. So there are these two pictures of out of bondage and slavery, deliverance, and into promised hope that make up the core of God's people here pictured through his deliverance through these waters. And so both of these pictures point us to Jesus, the scriptures show us. So Matthew chapter 3 records Jesus coming from Galilee, wading into the Jordan to John the Baptist. Okay, strange guy, John the Baptist, right? He wades in to be baptized by him. And when John resists Jesus, Jesus' response is this. It is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus, the one who would culminate the deliverance from bondage, to sin and into the hope of promise now wades into these very waters, into the Jordan, to fulfill the true nature of what we're looking at, the true nature of the identity of God's promised deliverance and His redemption. He would die in the place of sinners and be raised to life to secure the promised eternal hope of all who would place their faith and trust in Him. He now, for those who have trusted and believed in him, he now separates their past and their future, their bondage to sin, to their life and righteousness. Faith in him claims that promise. And as, the pro, and as, a, and as Paul, the apostle, says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. And he is making all things new. Faith claims this promise, and so Jesus is the fulfillment of what this identity is. So this is why this applies to us. These stones were meant to be a sign of this given identity before God. Deliverance from bondage to redemption into hope and promise. Those were to be signs of their identity. And what it was meant to do was to provoke questioning from future generations. Now... It'd be hard for us to imagine that God would actually intend for us to have moments that actually caused kids to ask more questions, right? But this is the whole point. Kids and students ask a lot of questions. Um, My daughter doesn't yet talk, uh, like she'll say a couple of words, but she's not like carrying on sentences yet, so I know my time's coming here, but I have heard a lot of questions from students, and I love hearing these these questions, not because I have all the answers and don't claim to, uh, but simply because if they're asking questions, that usually means what? They're, they're, the gears are turning, right? They're, they're thinking through some of these things, but nonetheless, it's hard for us sometimes to imagine that we would actually provoke questioning, <laughs> that we would that we would want to invite questions but this is what God has designed it to be like that we would leverage questions and provoke questions to direct the generations to him and so this is the point here that the next generation would ask us what does this mean to you verse six says, right so verse 6 shows us there's a personification here it's not just an abstract reality or knowledge but they're asking what does this mean to you individually what does this mean to you so when your children come in in a time to come and they ask you what does this mean to you what would you say specifically verse 21 reapplies that to fathers uh, as the first uh, the first ones to do so and so what does this mean to you? That means it starts with you and I. It starts with us. As we invest in our children in the next generations, it starts with God's work and Him forming our identity first and foremost. But this work is burdensome, right? Um, this is pictured in verses 1 through 7. This, God tells them, literally, Dig up a rock out of the, out of the riverbed, this rot, verse 5 says, is big enough to where you actually have to carry it on your shoulder. This isn't like a little pebble that you can carry around, you know, one-handed or by your side. No, you have to put this thing on your shoulder. You have to shoulder this bad boy, okay? So it had to be put up on the men's shoulders. And some commentators say that it was carried for an approximate uh, distance of eight miles. So imagine this burdensome t- picture of this task. So it will be burdensome. It will be difficult and heavy at times with no guarantee that they will believe. There's no guarantee here in this text that they will believe. Simply provoke them to ask so that they may believe. And so parenting and investment in the next generations, it will exhaust you. It will cost you. It is messy and you are likely to bleed. Because that in and of itself shows us our humanity. That it really is never about our perfection, it's about the perfection of the one that we serve. And so in our successes and our failings that we may draw attention to him as the hope. And so you are likely to falter in this. It is likely to be hard, but it is what God calls us to. And as with most things that aren't easy, right? That it's always worth it. So here's what it requires from this this text shows us. It requires this as we invest in the generations from our own work, the own working of God in our life. It requires this. It requires leadership. It requires that we go first, right? Deuteronomy 6, 5, the, the treatise to parents and uh, and those who are, who are making known God's love to the next generation begins with what words? You first love the Lord your God with all of your heart. You first love God. And so leadership requires that we go first. That we first love God. That he first does a work in our life separating our past and our future. Our bondage to our promised hope. And so verse 22 of Joshua 4 here assumes that when they ask, What does this this mean? You shall let them know. It assumes that we first experience and know this for ourselves. And so leadership requires simply that we go first. So it requires leadership. It requires authenticity. It requires that we be real. Um, verse 6 says, What does this mean to you? Remember? It's personified, it's not an abstract knowledge. What does this mean to you? And in order for that to happen, it has to be authentically laid to bear. What, we have to be real. Third, it requires transparency. It requires that we be open and take them with us. And so this is the rest of Deuteronomy 6 where it talks about that everything in our life, in our everyday actions, our traditions, and our rhythms are points at which we can direct them to hope in Jesus and to know Him. And so as you're, and you're rising up, you're going forth, talk about these things And so it requires that we be open and transparent, that we take them with us as a sign of our everyday actions. But here's what it does not require. It does not require perfection. It doesn't require that we be perfect, only that we be responsive and willing. Responsiveness and willingness before the Lord is what's required of us. As one commentator says, responsiveness to God, the willingness to live as He directs and to stay in close fellowship with Him is not only a prerequisite for leadership, it is also a prerequisite for any kind of blessing. So it doesn't require perfection. Only willingness and responsiveness. And so... This is a burden that's born out of our personal transformation, but it's not one that's meant to be one that we carry alone. And that brings us to the second reality, and it is this. That that generational discipleship, reality number two, is fostered among a covenantal community. It's fostered among covenantal community. Verses 19 through 22 give us this narrative of there's more than one person doing this. There are 12 stones that were brought up out of the Jordan. It was the redemption not just of individuals or groups, but it was a nation. It was a whole, right? And so these 12 stones were the ones that made up the memorial. And so each tribe had a role in a collective remembrance that celebrated the triumph of God's hope for the next generation. They contributed to a whole. And so God's means for us to thrive, God means for us to thrive in corporate life and witness is what this is telling us. It's essential for us because He redeems a people to Himself and is building a household of faith. Tyler read this last week, but I'm going to read it again. Ephesians 2, 12-22 says it this way. Remember that you were at the time, in your sins, separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ." So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, being built together into a dwelling place for God by His Spirit. So there's a communal aspect to our salvation, to our growth, and to our disciple-making. Because in Christ there's a communal aspect to life itself. And so here's here's what that means for you and I. It means that you don't have to have kids to do this. It's given to the nation, remember? Not to individual families. It doesn't have to be your kids to do this. Or just your kids. Hopefully it's not that you invest in. Because it's addressed to the whole nation. Verse 21 says, Do this so that all the next generations would know. And so... If you don't have kids or you're a, younger, you're a young adult or you're an empty nester, there's still a role for you in commending the next generation, right? Paul is a picture of this. Paul, the Apostle Paul, who we would say hopefully would be a significant part of, the, of, the, of God's storied redemption, he never had kids, he never was married, but he's an, he's an example to us in this communal investment uh, uh, in a young man named Timothy. Now, if you've read 2 Timothy, Paul describes that his first encounter with the faith was handed down to him by his grandmother and his mother. And yet, you see, at the same time, Paul is describing his encouragement. He's encouraging Timothy to continue on in the faith. And he's fanning into flame that which was implanted early in in his infancy by his grandmother and his mother. And so Paul's an example to this of us. And so what does that mean for us as far as application? That means this, that each time we come together, church, each time we come together in covenantal community, we are collectively embarking upon a remembrance of the triumph of God's hope in Jesus. Every time we do this, we are collectively doing so. And so we are a testimony to one another and to the next generations among us and those that will go beyond the us that don't even sit in our midst of the goodness of our great Savior, holding up His promises and saying to one another, you can trust Him. Will you trust Him? And so I see this being made manifest in a couple of ways already in Life Point. There's one in my own daughter that I see. I see this in my own daughter, um, even though she can only say a few words, which uh, the, her new one this this week is she's saying no to everything, which is not the best thing that, that she's learned lately, just telling us no to everything. Um, do you want to go to bed? No. Do you want to do anything? No. <laughs> um, so though she can say a few words, in her sweet receptivity, she's mimicking everything, so in an incredible short period of time. So she spent one afternoon with uh, our friend's little boy, and now she says, "Uh uh-oh, to everything. So she's just impressionable. And so here's what I see, though. On Sunday mornings, when we're busy doing our normal thing and whatever God's called us, gifted us to do um, in, in those areas, pressing in, trying to be an encouragement, she's in the nursery. And it is such an encouragement to see that, at very basic yet vital ways, there are people instilling a trust in God, a trust in His people, and a trust in His Word, even at her age, and she can't say anything. I also see this in our students. One of which, um, uh, I read a testimony uh, uh, from this student late uh, recently. Where they eloquently describe the church's role in their gospel transformation. This is some, uh, this is some of the things they said. They said, "I used to go to church with, um, with the. I used to just go with the flow and and use the whole Christian uh, thing as routine. I'd go to school and on Wednesdays and Sundays I'd go to church. I would hear all these insane stories of this incredible man that once was. I'd sing the songs about him, but I mean, I sang everything." But then this person describes a season of difficulty that God allowed into their life. And initially how they tried to resist that, how they ran from that, how they just tried to avoid the difficulty and pain of that. And yet, as the Lord began to minister to them through the ministry and the people of His church, this is what she says. She says, those events started to work in me and I felt something blooming. Later in that year, I began spending more time in God's Word and with my church community, and my life got turned around again, and I felt like I could breathe fresh air. What glorious words they used there. And I have a new perspective. I was baptized an example to my church community, and I now look to Christ and embrace everything He's put me through for His glory. And so, when you parent your children, when you encourage another's children... When you read the scriptures with a teenager or you just encourage a teenager in, in their service, when you pray for them, when you care for kids in kid life or in your community group or whatever that may be, you are not just filling a space, but you are holding out gospel truth for a generation to come that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord, as Psalm 102.18 says. Because God's ministering presence is made manifest among his people, right? So life together in the local church community is a vital part of generational disciple-making because here's what, here's, guess why? Because it is vital for all growth and disciple-making, yours and mine included. We all need the covenant community for this and for God's advancement of Christ in our own life. And so ultimately all of this is to hold up God's grace and power to redeem and restore among all peoples as a witness. And so that leads to the third reality, and that is that generational disciples making all of this is for what purpose? Verse 23 and 24, For God's glory among the nations. Its purpose is Clear so that all peoples of the Earth would know that the hand of the Lord is mighty and that you may fear the Lord your God forever. It starts in us in our households, but it does not stay there. And so generational investment, like the institution of family declared in Genesis 128, is the means to multiplied worship throughout the whole world. As one commentator Warren Weersby says, he says, the God who opens the river is the God everyone ought to fear, love, and obey. And I would follow it up to say only this, that the God who redeems us from sin and brings us back to, to Himself and reconciles us from Our bondage to sin and slavery to redeem us into promised hope and life in Him is the one that everyone ought to fear, love, and obey. And so as Psalm 127, verse 4 tells us, like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. The thing about an arrow is it's meant to be shot out, right? It's meant to be used to be used for victory over the enemy. That's why arrows exist, to be sent into battle. We would do well to acknowledge that as the reality of what we're doing. And so God uses us as we go to prepare and send a next generation to be light in darkness. And as I said to the first service, oh, how much our world needs light. And so the greatest good of the next generation is found in knowing and making known this good news. It's found in knowing and making known the good news of Jesus Christ. And so the hope of our children and the next generation is bound up in the hope of the whole world. So this is what that means. That means the greatest entrustment God has stewarded us with, besides the gospel itself, Is the next generation. It is our greatest stewardship to be used for His glory and His purposes. And so, in closing, I want to give you three applications from this text. What does this mean for us? Where do we start in pursuing this? And the first one is this we must go first. We must go first. We must go first to trust and to wonder in the gospel. Verse 6, again, what does this mean to you? Is this good news for you? What does this mean to you? It's the question we are beckoning from the generations, and so I'll ask it today. What does this mean to you? Have you reckoned the hope of of this salvation for yourself and received it by faith? Is it your hope? Is it enlivening every area of your life? Do you know this promise fulfilled in Jesus? Is it your own? Secondly, we must be careful to set the gospel before the next generation and provoke them to respond. Again, we hold it out so that they will respond and provoke them to do so. Verse 21 gives us this. It moves from the personal question to the what, is the, what do these things mean? We want to present that opportunity. So we must be careful. Because more is caught than is taught, right? You've heard that. And so our rhythms in our lives will model and hold out something to them. The question only is, what will it be? And so this doesn't demand perfection. it only willingness and responsiveness before God. What are we holding out? Will we be careful that it's the gospel? What do these things mean? And then third, we must have an eye beyond them. We must have an eye beyond them. The whole purpose is, as verse 24 says, so that all peoples of the earth may know the hand of the Lord is mighty and that you would fear the Lord your God forever. So the question is, do we see God's purposes in the gospel in our lives, and its advancement through us as supreme in all things. Is it that much of a hope for us? And so our response is, is this, as we consider what, how to respond to these things, you may need to consider what it may be like to invest in the next generation at life point That may be you and I'd encourage you to do so. There's a great need here, and I'm thankful for a church that already does so so well. So you may need to consider what that looks like, but maybe you want to simply pray for the generations among us, Maybe uh, to come or just to come and lay yourself willingly in authentic willingness before him and say, "Take me as I am, use me where I am, and go first." So however that looks, whatever that looks like, let's consider this. What will it look like for us to go first? What will it look like for us to model responsiveness and openness to God, to seek His purposes for us in Christ, that the next generation and all peoples may know this hope? So as the worship team comes I want us to consider those things. And let's pray. Let's pray together. Lord God, I thank You that we have this message of hope in Christ who has released us from the bondage of sin in order that we might have life and righteousness in Him. And so... God, I thank you for the message of hope that this is, that you have separated our past from our future in the sending of your Son. That in his death he put to death all that is in bondage and in his resurrection for those who would hope and place their faith in him, that he would fulfill all righteousness for them. And so I pray, God, maybe there's someone here this morning that does not know that hope who is yet to embark upon that. Would they simply say yes to you? This morning, and to know that firsthand, to experiencing your deliverance and redemption first and foremost in their life, that they can say, Let me tell you what this means to you, not only to the next generations, but to all who may see and hear. And God, I pray for those who may be in this room who've tried, who are burdened with the work of parenting, investment, whatever that may look like, that somehow the enemy has snuck in this false lie that we must be perfect to do this when you are telling us all we need to do is be willing and responsive. And that in our faltering, that in the mess, sometimes... It's only that we be willing and open to be received to be used by you. And so, in our successes and failures, would you use them to point our children and the next generations to you? And so, God, help us to be faithful. Would you work among the generations in life point even? God, I pray for a generation to come, one that is not even yet here, that they would hope and know the joy of Christ and hope of His calling. Would you begin this in us, we pray, for the glory and honor of your name. In Jesus' name.